welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 63, recorded on March 11th, 2020. The Cloud Pod stays home to enjoy the fireworks. Yay! Yeah, fireworks are always great. That'll be a good lead into an interesting story a little later about some bottle rockets. How's it going, Jonathan? It's good, Justin. Getting loads of stuff done. Feeling really good. Uh, yeah, I was I was feeling pretty good, and then I got sent home from work, and we're not going back to the office for several weeks. So that's a that's a little bit of a bummer in the world. Uh, mm, yeah. but, uh, Working at home with kids or getting coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a double edged <laughs> sword. Um, I mean, it would be so bad if they weren't on spring break for the next two weeks. Uh, it'd be fine if they were at school, but they're they're not. They're going to be here with me while I'm trying to work. So it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, we uh, were hoping to get Peter, but uh, apparently he booked his flight, so he arrives during the recording of the podcast. So we uh, we called in our good uh, friend Ryan, as usual. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Always on deck. Always on deck. On standby. <laughs> <laughs> it's always fun when it, we get the message from Peter, like, I, I can't do it tonight. And we're like, uh, okay, Ryan, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I could do it. It's fine. <laughs> always on deck, huh? Seaman Lucas. Well, I mean... I, I lead a very boring life, so I'm basically here just randomly doing stuff in my house at all times. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's better than cleaning the house, right? Which is your other task. Which was. is the, the thing that I was should be doing right now, yes. Yeah, see, just one more reason <laughs> your wife can be mad at me. So. Yes, she'll add it to the list. On a sad note, we're going to start this, this week with uh, the cancellation of most of the summits for AWS in April. Uh, that includes the Sydney, the Singapore, the Mumbai, the Paris, the San Francisco, and the Public Sector Summit in Brussels. Uh, this is all, of course, because of uh, the coronavirus threat and the situation there and not wanting to bring large numbers of people together to potentially get infected. So I think it's the uh, the right call, but uh, a bit disappointing for the 500 stickers I have in my, my car now in a, a box that just arrived from Sticker Mule that I won't have a chance to give out at the San Francisco summit. So that's a, a bit of a bummer. But uh, I think it's the right call. What do you guys think? I wouldn't want to go even if they hadn't canceled it. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's fair. It's just responsible at this point. Like it's reading all the news. It's not about stopping it necessarily. It's about slowing it down. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, about, thinking about that. Like it's inevitable that's, that millions of people are going to get it. But uh, at least if you slow it down, then the, the healthcare system can slightly deal with it a little bit better or a little, yeah. little bit more efficiently. So, yeah. I saw his comment, I think, on Twitter and someone was saying, uh, we did such a great job scaling all of our technology solutions and websites, but we, we didn't do such a good job scaling our healthcare system <laughs> or designing it for scale. Yeah, so that's a bummer. Hopefully uh, these will become digital conferences, though, where you can go online and, and not pay attention to a webinar, um, which is what I'm afraid will happen with these. But yeah, we'll see how Google Next goes and as well as these summits as they get rescheduled as webinars. Um, if that's interesting or if they are able to make them more compelling than a normal webinar. And, you know, the one thing that's interesting to me about this is Amazon's also sent all their workers home there, a week and a half ahead of us. So I'm, I'm hoping that we get some really good features uh, for Amazon Chime since they're now all forced <laughs> to use it <laughs> in a pretty aggressive way. All right. You've, you've won the lightning round regardless. <laughs> regardless of the fact that we're not doing it like that anymore. So uh, I did get I did get a, a tweet when I, I tweeted that out and someone from Amazon reached out on the Chime team. I was like, oh, I'd love to hear your feedback or what you'd like to see in the product. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll get back to you on that. They're going to regret that tweet. Like I've been, tra- I've been trying to call you on Chime, but it just doesn't work. 
<laughs> or unfortunately, because I know your email address, I can call you directly on Chime. Exactly. <laughs> I, what I really, what I really want is uh, it to not ask me how my call was every time. Like I hang up a call. Seriously, it's like uh, I'll tell you if it's bad. Skype does the same thing though. It's like you should already know. You shouldn't have to ask me. You should know. You have the metrics. There's got to be an algorithm that'll tell them, right? That's what you think. Yeah, I, I suppose it's, it's about measuring your perception of it rather than the actual facts. Yeah, it could be. But still, yeah, annoying. Spend up having to use Chime, but having to fill out the survey every time is like even worse. Well, you know, I have multiple production workloads on Amazon, so that's what I answer on every survey. <laughs> <laughs> about a month or two back, we talked about on the show that Amazon had won that injunction um, against the DoD and Microsoft for the Jedi contract. And so it's come out now that that was based on the fact that Amazon was able to prove to a judge that the uh, should have been Microsoft should have been disqualified uh, due to the type of data storage that Amazon says does not meet their requirements. Uh, the non-compliant storage solution allows its rival to offer an artificially low price for the capability, and that's how, uh, like I said, they convince the judge. The DoD says that they are arguing over superficial labels rather than actual performance, and that Amazon's own proposed solution would also be technically deficient. Uh, unfortunately, the specific type of storage is still redacted in the uh, latest legal documents that were published, uh, but they did mention that even if it was a deficiency, you have to mark that as a deficiency in the awarding, which was not done for Azure. And so I think that's what Amazon's point is, is that clearly something was missed in the due diligence uh, for this awarding of Jedi. So uh, very interesting. We'll see where that goes. Uh, hopefully they'll tell us what the magical Azure storage solution, maybe it's the ultra premium blob storage, doesn't quite meet the correct requirements. We'll only know when they tell us. It was strange because it said something, the wording was that, that it was around an online storage requirement. And I, I'm like, isn't all cloud storage online storage? Yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah, it's a little strange. But uh, the other thing I was thinking is that there must be more to the complaint than just the storage. I, I assume Amazon went in, into the courtroom with one definitive thing that they, they could be, you know, not, not waste time on just going and get it done. Well, I think I, they... I'm sure there's more to it. Yeah, for the injunction, they just need to prove that something was done improperly yeah. during the awarding of the contract. They, I think they have a ton of other arguments of why they're saying it shouldn't have been awarded and it was you know, political interference by Trump and all that. Um, I think that's going to be part of the larger contract. This is just the way for them to block progress on the Jedi contract uh, in the short term, which I don't, I don't know if I was on the government side how I feel about all this uh, red tape being thrown in my way about my vendor, but we'll see. I find it interesting that they're 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 saying, well, Amazon's solutions technically deficient, which is sort of like throwing in the towel on this isn't technically, <laughs> it's not sufficient at all for our needs. <laughs> this is a, or, or, or this is a requirement that clearly is not not good. <laughs> yeah, you know, like it's this is all wrong in so many ways. So it's interesting. Yeah, so I'm dying for details to 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 dive into the nitty gritty mm -hmm. on this and see what they actually are looking for. Yeah, this this case is going to be interesting when they finally give us technical details. This one and the uh, the Paige Thompson. Uh, Capital One case will be really interesting to see the technical details that come out at trial because I think it's going to be quite interesting. <laughs> but we'll see. Well, if uh, you are looking to build an architecture around cloud provider solutions, uh, this you want to foster an open-minded attitude in the networking world. And at a recent conference put on by Aviatrix, uh, they discussed that not all major cloud providers are the same. And there was an interesting quote in the article from uh, Justin Broadley. Cool. Uh, they all very specific. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's, there's two Justin Broadleys. <laughs> yeah. Well, you I said mean, it was interesting. I mean, it's from me, so why would I not want to quote myself in my own podcast? <laughs> they all have very specific design philosophies that allow them to be successful in different ways, and you have to keep that in mind as you architect your own solutions. 
Uh, for example, Amazon has a very regional affinity. They don't like to go cross-region in their architecture, whereas Google has a global network and things in terms of a global solution, So, uh, which I've said here on the podcast many times. So. I, I find it amazing how you read that as though you're quoting somebody else rather than yeah, I just know. I know, it was great, wasn't it? Voice. I know, it was great, wasn't it? You're welcome. It seems so much smarter when you, you know, know. quote it, though. No, it sounds so much better. Yeah. I actually watched the video. I've been on video now twice in the last year for different Amazon or different vendor things, and I typically don't watch them. And my wife was like, no, you did really good. You used to watch it. And so I watched it. It was actually, it was actually decent. So Nice. Practically famous. Practically famous. Yeah. Uh, well, VMware is embracing Kubernetes in the biggest product blitz in over a decade. Uh, they have announced the launch, imminent launch of vSphere 7.0. Uh, that includes the long-awaited Tanzu Kubernetes platform. Uh, last year at VMworld, they announced this as tied it to the Pivotal acquisition, and we talked about it here on the show. Uh, initially, the new vSphere will only be available through the VMware Cloud Foundation, which is their hybrid cloud offering, uh, which bundles in higher levels of security and more expansive lifecycle management for software-defined compute, storage, and network, uh, but will be expanded to vSphere on-premise sometime a little bit later in the year. And the new uh, Kubernetes-specific requirements are the new Tanzu Kubernetes Grid, the Tanzu Mission Control capability, and the Tanzu App catalog, which is like a platform as a service type offering on top of all of this. Uh, so we will see if VMware can crack the enterprise story of Kubernetes. Mission control is the make or break. I really think that it, if they can offer the Kubernetes experience to the developers, but have the visibility and provide it in a, like a dashboardy view that you know uh, someone can manage from a security and governance and um, an IT point of view. Like it's really going to make make or break what VMware can bring to this market. So it is really trying to marry two worlds together. So I'm excited to play with it and see if it's uh, you know feature complete or more than just a whole lot of uh, smoke. But it is it is interesting. I do like their play. I wish they could orchestrate virtual machines though in the same way that they're going to orchestrate. Docker containers. I mean, uh, imagine the, you start getting auto, native auto scaling on VMware and things like that. It would be would be neat. It's fascinating. They haven't really focused, you know, because it's really just about API driven choices, right? API driven orchestration, and so you get some really cool features in VMware, like you know, vMotion, and but none of it's really exposed directly to a developer, to an end user sort of point of view. It's still all sort of geared towards an administrator that's managing this for you. And so if they focused the other way around, it might be a little interesting. You know, it might be, you know, a better product. It might make, you know, running just straight VM containers more more palatable. But yeah, I think my, my first shock at the thing was like, can you imagine opening up the, the vSphere, uh, either, either the console or some kind of API to, to engineers? <laughs> and then yeah. I thought we might have people like that listening to our show, so I wasn't going to say too much about it. But uh, <laughs> just, I, I mean, I, I hope they got some pretty good fine-grained permissions on the thing. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the big problem, right? So Kubernetes, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen a Kubernetes cluster where it's just wide open, right? Because Kubernetes authentication is actually quite hard. You can gate by namespaces and you can do some things, but then administering and keeping those up up in order is, is is problematic and so and then you know vmware's native solution is like well don't let anyone have access yeah it's gonna be really interesting to see i i do look forward to seeing some terraform providers for this as well well moving on to amazon uh one of my big pet peeves is uh you know when you have an alarm that has another alarm and then you have another alarm and they're all tied to the same host and so now all four of them are paging me for cpu memory and disk and the host is down uh, when I don't care about the disk of memory when this host is actually down. Uh, so Amazon is now fixing that with the new CloudCrotch composite alarms, which allow you to combine multiple alarms, reduce alarm noise, and focus on critical operational issues. It also supports alarm hierarchies that only trigger when multiple alarms fire at the same time. Uh, you can also do some of the groupings based on uh, AWS things like AWS region or availability zone. 
and com uh, composite alarms still publish SNS topics enable you to trigger auto scaling or auto healing attacks. Uh, so this is pretty great. Yeah, I immediately was trying to think of use cases for this, like, you know, thinking about putting machines in and out of rotation so that they don't alarm when certain things, you know, like only under, under certain conditions, because you can do negative as well. Like, you know, only only if these two are positive or only if it is, it's, it's kind of neat how you can play with the thresholds there. There's a lot of different use cases where I can think I would use this. Uh, I'd like to mute alarms during maintenance windows. Now they have the change calendar. It'd be cool to uh, mute CloudWatch alarms that, to trigger during changes, especially for resources that you're scheduling to work on. But I think that the other thing I'd like to see is is more of um, uh, like relationships between different resources. And so if if uh, if the things alert, you can see the all of the resources in the path which may be uh, affected by a particular change, like upstream or downstream. Yeah, it'd be a good enhancement to this. Maybe we should uh, AWS wishlist this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can now host your apps with the AWS Amplify console uh, via S3 and CloudFront. Uh, and they finally gave a really great definition of what they think Amazon Amplify is, uh, which they're saying is an opinionated framework for building modern uh, applications with a tool chain for easily adding services like authentication via Kinito or storage S3 or using GraphQL APIs via command line interface. Uh, this supports all of your fancy-dancy uh, front-end languages like Angular, React, Vue.js, Ionic, Ember, and then static file generators like Gatsby, Hugo, Press and Jekyll. And there have been several other updates uh, for Amplify that come out over the last few months. So if you checked it out last year, uh, do check it out again as they've added quite a few functionalities that we have not fully covered here on the show just because we really weren't clear what it was going to do or what you would want it. But now we have a, a decent definition. We can uh, talk about it more. Feeling very heard because we talked about this previously and I'm like, I have no idea what this is. So this is the first article where I'm like, oh, I get this. Yeah. I understand now. Makes sense. It's, it's like a platform as a service for web apps. I know when I first tried playing with it many, many moons ago, when we first started, kicked off the website uh, for the pod, pod, I tried to use Jekyll with this, and it didn't quite work where I wanted to go. The AWS Serverless Application Repository is adding support for sharing applications with your Amazon organization. Uh, this allows you to take privately shared apps stored in the repo and uh, cross them to any AWS account with an organization ID attached to them. Uh, you can also define separate resource-based policy statements directly from the console and select the actions permitted under each statement uh, to use these particular actions. So if you have a very common like logging enhancement uh, Lambda function like we do, uh, you can then put that into an application repository and teams can deploy that directly from the repo uh, that would be updated from the central location. So this is pretty nice for some very uh, interesting CI/CD implications as well as for keeping your Lambda functions up to date across all of your accounts. Yeah, anything you can manage at an organization level is a huge benefit. And then you just have to sort of worry about the coordination of managing or, you know, educating these teams to deploy it into their accounts or however you work it. But it's, you know, these are the great reuse of code opportunities here. Pretty fantastic. It'd be nice if you could actually push out the applications to all your accounts as well with something like this. You know, not, not just make it available, but actually deploy it. I guess you can do it with CloudFormation, but it's not quite as uh, easy as just pushing a button. Yeah, I mean, but it's the repository, right? So it's a, providing a central place for all these things to get pulled from. So without having to coordinate network access to some sort of internal share or uh, something along those lines, you can provide access and, and coordinate with, yeah, like you said, something like CloudFormation. Hey, everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. 
from multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, I know you guys are both amazing database admins who love everything database. And now you can show your love for those databases by getting Amazon certification uh, for databases. This is a new specialty certification that allows you to prove to people that you understand everything about RDS, Aurora, and the many other database offerings uh, and your expertise of using those. Uh, you can schedule your exam at a testing center worldwide at $300, or you can get an online practice exam for $40 to see if you're ready to go. Uh, and the database experience and depth of knowledge help Amazon customers feel confident that they're getting the right database for the job and a team that can deliver on scalability and security requirements. And schedule today, and you'll be guaranteed a space anytime you like, because that room will be empty. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, a little surprised they didn't take this opportunity to announce virtual proctoring for all of their tests. Uh, that might have been something we could all do while we're working from home, uh, is working on our exams. <laughs> I don't know if I need to spend $300 to prove to myself that I don't understand how databases work. I mean, you can only spend $40, and no, you don't understand how databases work, so there's that option as well. That's true. I guess, yeah, the practice exam. Would, would educate me all the same. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, all of our friends at A-Cloud Guru and uh, Udemy and all these other places will have practice exams available for you as well. Amazon EKS uh, finally supports uh, Kubernetes version.1.15. Uh, this was talked about back in November that they were, they, you know, if they were on their timeline for when they released 1.14, it was about 90 days after they released uh, 1.14, or sorry, 1.13. Uh, so they thought that they would have this out in December. Uh, it is now March, and they are finally shipping it, and just in time for 1.15 to basically be end of life uh, in a very few short weeks. Uh, this was an important release as it does uh, support the new Knative uh, capabilities and the new versions. This is the lowest version of Kubernetes you can be on uh, for Knative. Uh, and AWS has added some additional features, including TLS termination on network load balancers, improved support for custom resource definitions, as well as the node local DNS cache uh, feature is now graduating to beta status. Uh, if you are using uh, Kubernetes 1.12, I don't know what's wrong with you at this point, uh, but uh, that's not being deprecated, and you should definitely move to at least 1.15, uh, which raises an interesting question uh, for you guys. What do you, what do you think the right upgrade strategy is for upgrading Kubernetes? Do you think it's upgrade in place, or do you think it's spin up a new cluster and move your containers? But is, is there any orchestration that can migrate workloads between clusters? I mean, yes, technically you could do that. I wouldn't say it's there's. I don't know of anything natively no. able to do that between clusters. No, um, so it is sort of this interesting. You know, I always recommend like a brute force sort of method of yeah migrating to clusters, but there it does take a fair amount of outside orchestration to make that happen because you do have to redeploy your apps one by one to the new cluster and migrate, and only then can you terminate the old cluster. So maybe we maybe we have like a front-end Kubernetes cluster, which farms out traffic to two other Kubernetes clusters, the old version and the new version. Yeah. But you still have that Kubernetes cluster in the front that has to be upgraded still, too. Oh, yeah. that's, well, that's easy, because then you have another one of those which farms out things to another one, and then above that, above that there's another cluster which, which manages that for you. Yeah, so it was, it was interesting, because um, 
you know, with this coming out so late, uh, there's a lot of conversations uh, on Reddit and on the issue and GitHub. And so I was reading up on this and, and you know, people were saying, I don't know why they even bothered with 1.15. I don't know why they didn't just bump to 116 or 117. Uh, and they were talking about the requirement to upgrade your cluster. So if you want to go from, you know, 113 to 115, you have to hit 114 in the middle and then 115, then you go to 116. There's no going from 113 to 116 directly, for example. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting, and I, I actually didn't know that was even capable. I just thought you just built a new cluster and you migrated your apps. Uh, so that was news to me. Uh, but then I was thinking about the complexity of that, and as Ryan was saying, that does sound pretty awful. Uh, yeah. but, the, uh, but one of the interesting things, uh, they didn't put it in the press release, but they did talk about it on both the GitHub issues and on the Reddit. Um, one of the big investments they made as part of this 1.15 was fixing a lot of the automation tooling so they could potentially release new versions of Kubernetes much faster in the future. Um, as they they are very cognizant of the fact that they are behind uh, where they need to be, and they should be at one one six and one one seven very quickly. Hopefully, if those investments uh, panned out as they hope they do. Wow! Look at those guys investing in the future. Maybe. Yeah, and they and they basically said, you know, yes, we're we're sorry it took this long to get to one one five, but we think this is the right investment in being able to be future proof. And I think that's you know, if it pans out to be actually they can reduce that ninety day window down to forty five days or something more reasonable. Um, I think we'll all thank them later. So we'll keep an eye on that here at the Cloud Pod. I guess they'll always be behind though. I mean, Google could be potentially working on new features that they know about before they push them out to the public repo, and so they can be much better prepared. Yeah, but even on GKE, we haven't seen them, you know, adopt the new version of Kubernetes right away. It's typically a few weeks before they adopt the new Kubernetes. For you know, I think they just came out with GKE one one seven support in the early release channel. It's not even in the production channel yet, so um, it's still there's still a gap. It's just a question: of how long is that gap going to be for most most releases? It's, it, it takes them that long to figure out how much more they're going to charge for it, though. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the uh, the other spe- uh, conversations that was happening was that they might have delayed uh, Kubernetes uh, EKS at 115 for this next feature, uh, which is the new Bottle Rocket, uh, a new open source Linux based operating system purpose built to run containers. Uh, Amazon is announcing this as a public preview of Bottle Rocket. Uh, Bottle Rocket includes a single step update mechanism and includes only the essential software to run your containers, very similar to like a car OS. Uh, this allows you to use container orchestrators to manage OS updates with minimal disruption enabling better uptime for containerized applications and lower operational costs. Uh, so again, I'm glad to see a nice, good replacement for CoreOS that is not owned by Red Hat. Didn't, didn't they kill CoreOS? They did. Yeah. Kind of. So they, they released ContainerOS Fedora and ContainerOS CentOS, I believe. Uh, so they sort of merged them together. But I, I can't imagine that the, you know, like other than keeping the, probably the base level of what they were trying to provide with CoreOS's container OS, I can't imagine they've kept much just because they were such radically different operating systems. Yeah, I mean, if CoreOS wasn't even based in the Red Hat ecosystem, so the packaging yeah. system was different and everything, so it's... Like we, I think we researched at one point, we we found out it was closer to Google Chrome in lineage than it was to, like, <laughs> <laughs> to Red Hat or, you know, anything. Like, it's very... It was very different. Um, And so I'm really excited about this new... They kept basically all of my favorite features of CoreOS. Um, The fact that it's open source, the fact that you can... You can play with it and you can build it on your own. Um, It it updates itself behind the scenes. Um, And you can launch uh, an administrative container inside of the OS and you... Which automatically mounts all the underlying... um, system level stuff and you can actually do debug stuff which is kind of neat because I, I was 
playing around. Like it's it doesn't support ECS today. It's only a lot open for EKS. Um, ECS is on the roadmap, but it's not out yet. Huh, that's interesting. It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but it's largely just because, I, I mean, if you know how uh, Kubernetes versus ECS works, like it does make actually a lot of sense. Um, ECS is running, you know, in, in, in Linux land, it's running as a Docker container on there, but you also need to have like orchestration into the file system for read configs and other things like that, which is what they, they probably can't support as a lot of that, making sure the service is up and launching it. That's interesting. I guess from a business perspective, uh, if you're already using ACS, then you're already a customer, whereas something like this may entice people over from Google GKE now. It could be. I mean, still, you know, like this is more along the lines of if you're running EC2, even on ECS, you know, Fargate's managed for you behind the scenes, but if you're running an EC2 workload for some reason, this manages a ton of operational overhead for you. The only thing you have to really figure out is is how to reboot in a sane manner and move your your workloads around right now, which Kubernetes does natively. So I'm pretty sure that's part of the reason. Like you can it's a lot easier to orchestrate. But I'm daydreaming ways since since I'm not a heavy Kubernetes user and I don't really have since most of my container workloads are single tenant, um, I don't have really the need to do a whole bunch of traffic management. I'm daydreaming on how I can usurp their administrative container and use it to basically configure the hosts I want. And you can you can launch and configure that administrative container via API, which is my favorite part. Nice. Yeah. Are you done talking about that? Sorry, I nerded out and I put Justin to sleep. You did, you did. <laughs> it was good, though. I'm, I'm awake. You don't know. You weren't listening. I wasn't. That's fine. I, I knew everything you said already. <laughs> Justin's all about oh. the Tupperware containers. Yeah. Tupperware. Hey, it's I like Tupperware. Hey, Tupperware is yeah. awesome. I spent more money in Tupperware than I should have in my lifetime, I'm sure. <laughs> Google Cloud is unveiling a new strategy for the telecommunications industry. Uh, this is... Uh, a new gesture to the mobile industry to enable Google Cloud at the edge. And this is through the new Global Mobile Edge Cloud, or GMEC, strategy, which deliver a portfolio and marketplace of 5G solutions built jointly with telecommunication companies, an open cloud platform for developing these network-centric apps, and a globally distributed edge for optimally deploying these solutions. Uh, and the first partnership in this new arrangement is the AT&T and Google are announcing this partnership uh, for enterprise to take advantage of Google Cloud's technologies capabilities using AT&T's network uh, at the edge, including 5G. And they also announced the launch of Anthos for Telecom, which will bring its Anthos cloud application platform to the network edge, allowing telecommunications companies to run their applications wherever it makes the most sense. Congratulations. Telecom can now spend 10K a month too. Woohoo. Welcome to the fold. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not see pricing for Anthos Telecom. I was wondering if it was the same price or not. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if they'll let me run my Anthos uh, in their te- telecom edge. That'd be the question I want to know. I just wonder how who Oracle Cloud is going to partner up with. If you have Google partnering with AT and T, you have AWS partnering with Verizon. Uh, is Oracle Cloud going to partner with Cricket Wireless? Uh, is that- yeah, Cr- Cricket's singular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess Azure needs to rush to the go sign that Sprint T Mobile deal so they can, they can right. partner. I mean, T Mobile's headquarters is in uh, is not that far south of Redmond, so T Mobile actually makes the most sense. I think maybe for. Uh, for Microsoft, but uh, if they were to look for a partner who's close. Who's going to partner with the uh, SpaceX Starlink network, though? That'd be kind of cool. Mm, that'd be cool. I don't think Azure is that forward-thinking, but well, yeah, maybe. maybe yeah, there's, a There's no partnering. Forward. There's no partnering. They'll just build their own oh, yeah. cellular network. 
yeah. from scratch. Yeah, I like I like how they uh, they, they close the story on oh well they, we think they're going to spin off Starlink and uh, no no we're not going to spin off Starlink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities or custom integrations, and maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Bloomadora introduces Bindplane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. Bindplane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. Remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic or Azure Monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting bloomadora.com slash cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes and as a bonus for cloudpod listeners, Bloomadora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. Buy and plain seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data. Uh, Google is announcing they'll be launching additional cloud regions in Delhi, Doha, Qatar, and Melbourne, Australia, and Toronto, Canada. Uh, each of the new regions will have three zones to protect against these service disruptions, launch with a portfolio of key GCP products, and offer lower latency near their users. Uh, Google also in this article uh, mentioned that they have several priorities when they consider new regions. Uh, the first one being they want to provide multiple in-country DR options. Cough, Amazon, please do that too. Uh, <laughs> give you control of your data and build with sustainability in mind, uh, taking advantage of those green initiatives that they have going on in the Google world. Uh, so that is uh, pretty nice. Uh, glad to see additional Australia regions as well as uh, India and Qatar. That's really great. Yeah, this sent me on a little bit of like a, a clickhole expedition because I was, was like, what do they mean by sustainability? Um, and so, you know, reading through the article and then there's actually a ton of content about what they mean by sustainability. Like they go into immense detail of percent of solar, percent of uh, hydro and where it comes from and energy providers and they're, they're their carbon net neutrality and like there was a there's a bunch of information and, and um i was very surprised at how transparent they're being with with how they're proving that sustainability and how they're achieving that and how they're measuring themselves as well like it was it's a very interesting set of documentation they have and I can tell it's interesting by the silence. <laughs> John, Jonathan, Jonathan's still trying to figure out where Qatar is. He's like, I don't know where that's at. <laughs> That's not a British colony. I'm sorry. It's not taught in geography in, in Britain. No. I, I was trying to find my uh, predictions because I remember predicting that this year there'll be growth at data centers, but I'm pretty sure I said Africa. And so far, there's been data centers popping up everywhere except the African continent. So. <laughs> I still yeah, got time. Yeah. I still got time. You, next yeah. year, you maybe want to make that a little bit more broad statement. Yeah. <laughs> if we'll let you get away with it. I mean, he he did choose a whole continent. I, I mean, what, he did. I mean, like yeah. a hemisphere? What and if he, was like, if he was like, you know, I want to take the entire, you know, from Russia to Africa, you know, continents, I, I don't know we would have let him do that. So yeah. <laughs> it's probably yeah. just like a game of risk that's very hard to do. Right. Yes. Data centers will be deploying more data centers. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> 
Uh, Google is uh, introducing a new machine image, uh, this new type of compute engine resource that contains all the information you need to create, backup, or restore the virtual machine, reducing the amount of time you spend running and managing your environment. Uh, machine images uh, may sound familiar to you if you're familiar with custom images, uh, but Google likes to point out there are two key or some key differences between them. The first is a custom image typically captures the contents of a single drive, for example, the boot disk, uh, which can be used to create new instances, and you can install your applications in the C drive and or root partition, whatever. Uh, you can do all those type of things. With the new machine images, they are more comprehensive in that they allow you to contain multiple disks, as well as the information required to capture and create new instances, including instance properties, like the machine type, labels, volume mapping, network tags, data of all the attached disks, instance metadata, and permissions, including the service account used to create the instance. Uh, this is all supports the, the same technologies like incremental backups and normal imagey things, and uh, is an interesting improvement. Uh, but I do have to say Amazon had this one first with launch sets and uh, launch configurations. And then, of course, you can always create volumes from a snapshot and attach them anytime you want to. But hey, Google, I'm super happy for you. Yeah, I was, I was kind of thinking this had been stuck in the, uh, the blog pipeline for a few years or something. But yeah, I mean, to be fair, Amazon only several months ago announced that you could save the metadata of, of the image of the instances along with this, along with the uh, snapshots so they're, they're not that far behind but well i mean i and in fairness that is something that's relatively new but i, I think that concept of uh taking a image and saying you know i'm going to be able to attach multiple volumes to it or have the set of configuration like the machine type and the labels and the volume mappings that's all launch configuration stuff that amazon's had for a long time and so i just I, that part it feels a little bit chintzy to me that they're thinking of something unique but yeah uh, the metadata thing is new and it is not available to you as an image i don't believe uh in it is an ami image attribute in amazon it is available to you in that backup dr capability not in this one mm-hmm. i looked at this and i was trying to figure out like where would i use this and i could not come up with a use case but i could think of a lot of ways that this could go wrong i mean i think i built something similar to this with uh lambda functions and you know i could maybe do this with a terraform module if i really wanted to this kind of concept of these different parameters and such, but uh, it's nice that it's native to the platform. And I'm sure some customer desperately wanted the ability to have multiple drives uh, in their image. I wonder if this is more of a DR play too, because you can have all these cold just sitting there and then your DR event, it's just like you're literally recreating the same machine somewhere else. Oracle databases in the cloud. (laughs) (laughs) And you can keep all the configurations of all your your awful Veritas uh, file systems for that. So it's great. Well, uh, moving on to Azure, they are announcing the preview of Backup Reports. This stunning, innovative feature called Backup Reports allows you to perform real-time monitoring of your backups, helping you achieve increased efficiency in your day-to-day operations. The Backup Reports are a one-stop destination for tracking usage, auditing of backups and restores, identifying key trends at different levels of granularity, and the report works across multiple workload types that are supported by Azure Backup. Uh, rich slicing, dicing, and drill-down capabilities are available, and it is a native Azure-based experience, meaning it uses their fantastic UI paradigm. <laughs> I don't know if you at home could hear the smile and snark coming out of Justin, <laughs> but yeah, it's palpable. I actually really like this feature. They're making fun of me for it. No, I backups are stupid, right? No one likes backups. No one likes paying attention to backups, but they're necessary when you need them. If they're not there, it's a big problem. And so anything they can do where I can just quickly glance and be like, is there red on that dashboard? Then I have to pay attention, but hopefully everything's all green and I never have to pay attention again, which is what I do normally, which is never pay attention and then just pray for the best. 
So I do like this. I, I, it is nice to have that one-stop shop, but ugh, a, a full press release is about much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just hoping the, the requirement for backups and backup management goes away as people adopt more and more cloud services because think, think about storage, you've got versioned objects. And um, I, I think this could be provided natively without us having to worry about running a backup at a particular time and having it pass or fail and alerting somebody and having them fix it and do it manually. Like, there's no reason why all of this data management couldn't be just become part of the platform. And so I think, I think uh, I'm going to sell, my, sell my, uh, my, my stock in Rotas and Symantec and everybody else and in a few years. This will be a non-issue, I think. I mean, hopefully. I mean, a lot of these things are because of compliance controls, right? It's like you have to prove your backups are working. You have to prove that when they don't work, you get a notification. I'm hoping all the auditors right now sort of retire and then we get some new auditors who are cloud aware uh, who realize that object management and, and other cloud native services can provide the same resiliency of data without actually... Oh. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. let's let, let's take baby steps. Can we get auditors who understand DevOps concepts first? <laughs> well, sometimes there's an advantage to having auditors which don't quite know what's going on because you can, you know, <laughs> you do get away with a little bit, a little bit. You're like, no, it it works because it's magic. A little bit more than usual. Well, PowerShell seven has uh, arrived on the scene. PowerShell seven, of course, the next major release of PowerShell. Uh, it follows PowerShell six. If you didn't know, oh, wow. the, the, <laughs> the latest release makes PowerShell a truly cross-platform automation tool and configuration framework with PowerShell seven addition to the new commandlets and APIs, uh, and bug fixes, of course, cause there's always bugs. There's several new features, including pipeline parallelization for each object parallels, new operators, including uh, ternary operators, pipeline chain operators, and null condition operators, a simplified and dynamic error view and get error commandlet for easier investigation of errors, which will happen often in PowerShell, a compatibility layer that enables users to import modules in an implicit Windows PowerShell session, automatic new version notifications, and the ability to invoke DSC resources directly from PowerShell 7. Uh, this is marked experimental, uh, so be careful on that one. And under the hood, this includes the move from .NET Core 2.x to 3.1, which allows you a new set of .NET framework APIs, enabling greater backward compatibility and new UI capabilities never before had in a scripting language. Where has this been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 oh dear me! The the features they're implementing have been around in other languages for decades. But now they're they're new to Windows people because they didn't exist before, Jonathan. So they are finding the light of Bash finally in PowerShell with these new capabilities. I do find it funny because PowerShell like two or something when it was first sold to me by uh, my Windows friendly friend at the time, it was he was touting it as it was a Bash replacement. Um, and it was just not fully featured. And so like to, to see some of these things, like, you know, being able to pipe, pipe and NN based on success or failure, you know, these, it is, it is sort of funny. I'm like, Oh, they just got that. Huh? Right, so, so you have to rewrite all of your logic on your project that you're working on now uh, to adopt this new, I, no, I don't think so. We're still, we're still on the old version of windows. So to, to try and, to try and much like trying to run a later version of Python on your Mac, Trying to run multiple versions of PowerShell on Windows is a little bit more more uh, painful, gotcha. but it's coming, and coming also soon. More explosive. <laughs> <laughs> you can always run it in a Docker container. Ooh, ooh, that's right. You also can run PowerShell on Linux. I don't know if you knew that. So you can take this, this fantastic PowerShell 7 capabilities and you can use it on your Linux host, John. You can. And I, I can see this being useful if you're going to run SQL Server or something on Linux or any other kind of ported Windows applications because PowerShell, I mean, it seems very nicely tailored to the Windows management 
system in the Windows platform. And I, I don't know that people would want to pivot to something like PowerShell to start managing Linux machines or, or Mac OS or things like that. But if it's to manage a Windows product, then then you can start using the same tools cross-platform, and that just makes things easier for everyone. So for the same reasons why well, I think Bash will never go away, PowerShell will always be sort of like... Well, I mean, cool. there's no other option on Windows other than PowerShell or, or Batch files, and Batch files are even more limited in their capabilities. Um, or you run into VB script, which I don't really want to do ever again if I can help it. So, I mean, of all the, the choices that I have on Windows, PowerShell is the least offensive of all of them. <laughs> it's funny, but so I've been automating the databases SQL servers with uh, with PowerShell, and I've realized that the T-SQL, which has been part of SQL Server for 20 years, 20 plus years, it's actually powerful enough to replace almost all the functionality I had in PowerShell. So previously I had, like, I'd make a query to a database and I'd do something in PowerShell with the data and then do something else. I've replaced almost all of that code with just native T-SQL code because it's it's so so much better documented and so much easier and more um, more understandable. Well, that's that's interesting because I, I it is you know the SQL team when they first adopted, um, you know they basically took the, it away from the database people and gave it to engineers and said you know you need to rewrite this thing and they they came out with the early versions of SQL 2000 and the, with the MSC controllers and all that. Um, There's a lot of hatred about how much dev uh, coding had ended up inside of SQL, uh, but you see kind of over time how that's continued to evolve and become more and more of a programming language unto itself. Uh, and there's some really interesting things you can do with SQL Server and T SQL. Um, that I don't recommend necessarily, but you can do them. <laughs> so, well, uh, that is it for the new news. And since we have a guest host, we are doing weekend update format lightning round. Uh, since it's not scored, sorry, Wayne. And hopefully, oh, sorry, what? Uh, sorry, Wayne. Sorry, Wayne. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we will get started here. I uh, I have the first one out of the box, and we will go Jonathan and then Ryan as we go through the lightning round. Prepare to be amused. <laughs> <laughs> Commence laughing in three, two, one. Web application firewall with Azure front door service now supports exclusion lists. It's like a virtual bouncer for your website. To always get around this exclusion list, just use the MS Edge browser. They got to get market share somehow. And vulnerability scanning for images in Azure Container Registry is now GA, meaning you can scan those massive Windows containers of vulnerabilities that increase exponentially every patch Tuesday. Why, Microsoft? Why? Azure Security Center now supports integration with Azure Monitor Alerts because it's good to know when your infrastructure has been completely owned because of those container vulnerabilities. Azure has improved resource governance for Azure Analytics services. The most important is, of course, make sure the CEO's report runs as fast as humanly possible. Everyone else can wait. And you can now use AWS CloudFormation to provision AWS chatbots. This also means you can now create a wormhole. Alexa, tell CloudFormation to configure Slack to launch Lex in US East 1. AWS RoboMaker simulation now supports GUI streaming for robot and simulation. Who's not a robot now? Screw you, recapture. Try again. Damn. AWS Simulation now supports GUI streaming for robot and simulation applications. Who's not a robot now? Screw you, Recaptcha. All right, you got it right that time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get all the words? Well, you said them all right the first time, but you failed to recapture. <laughs> it looked like a light pole. <laughs> it was a stop sign. Is that sign. an L or a 7? I can't yeah. really tell. It was a stop it sign. It sort of cuts off at the top. Is that still cool? Yeah. Can you imagine a Google self-driving car? Like if they run out of information or something, you're going to stop at some weird at some weird intersection waiting for somebody to, to complete the recapture to tell the car whether or not it, it can carry on or, <laughs> or it's going to stop. <laughs> that is a traffic light, Google. Come on. 
AWS WAF now supports anonymous IP lists for AWS managed rules. Who's trying to access the site? Hmm, it's anonymous. Sounds legit. Let them write in to those Windows containers. Azure Cosmos DB, Jupyter Network. Azure Cosmos... <laughs> Azure Cosmos DB, Jupyter Notebooks are now in preview. Cosmos and Jupyter, I see what you did there, Azure. Nice job. Amazon EKS adds envelope encryption for secrets with AWS KMS. Fortunately for me, I write all of my secrets on envelopes, and I tape them to the bottom of my keyboard. I have a post-it stuck on my keyboard that says, try harder. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Amazon Aurora with Postgres SQL compatibility supports in-place upgrades from Postgres 9.6 to 10. If a Postgres tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear the screams of the DBAs, did it really upgrade? <laughs> i got to stop smiling so much. <laughs> Serious face. I got a new cat the other day, and uh, introducing a cat into the household is rather troublesome because we already have a cat, and one of the cats is trying to like gnaw its way through the door or something into uh, into where I am. It's very distracting. <laughs> but hey, I've got two cats now, so great. Yeah, who's winning now? Redshift is announcing column level access controls dramatic, dramatically. Wow, that's a, that's a new word. <laughs> yeah, dramatically increasing support calls that go like. I select star from the DB, but I only got six columns, but Nancy got eight, so it's broken. Do you want to retry that since you mess up dramatically? I can fix it. Okay. <laughs> Editor's got this. That's great. Yeah. But that, oh, that, that's so right. Oh, at least you should return the columns, but not any data in them. So at least you know that <laughs> you're not getting the data in the columns you're not allowed to have. Hey, hey don't mess with the joke. <laughs> Feature request. <laughs> AWS Code Commit introduces an open source remote handler. The only thing more remote is the possibility that I'll actually use Code Commit. Code Commit. <laughs> <laughs> AWS adds the ability for customers to enable AWS local zones themselves. Just in time for coronavirus self quarantine into the local zone. Bring toilet paper. <laughs> but it's not left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I started saving the newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, East Bay Times, it's, it's going to be one use for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's about all I can think of. Microsoft is preparing for TLS 1.2 in Azure, living up to the motto, marching headlong into 2008. You can now export Power BI reports into PDF, PPTX, or PNG. Unfortunately, the PowerPoint report still says the same thing, that Amazon Quick Start adoption is dropping at an alarming rate. Too true. That is too true. Yes, too true. <laughs> and that is it for uh, our weekend update edition of Lightning Round. So uh, we are, if Peter's back next week, we'll go back to the old format, but uh, we'll see. We'll see if he, he comes back from Mexico or gets quarantined. Well, uh, here we normally would talk about uh, things that are coming up, but uh, everything's canceled. So nothing's coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, so we'll just keep coming back to you here at the Cloud Pod as we uh, talk about uh, all these amazing uh, features coming from the cloud providers. Uh, I am hoping for a really fantastic set of releases for Chime in about six to nine months uh, after all the Amazon work from home people realize how bad Chime is and fix it. Uh, so I do look forward to uh, Chime 2.0. If you are out there, please uh, stay healthy if you can and uh, you know, stock up on that toilet paper apparently because it's running out. So, uh, Jonathan, Ryan, anything? Uh, well, I have plenty of toilet paper, but I, 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 for now, I'm, I'm more worried about like the end of my you know, two-week stint of working from home. Am I still going to be able to get normal amounts of normal things? I mean, you're, you're, you're cute that you think it's only going to be two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see this being three months. <laughs> That's a long time to go without showering. I don't know. If I, I mean, I mean, I mean, a lot of the other, 
you know, fang companies here in the Bay, they've already announced 30 days or 60 days. So they're, they're talking about not coming back till end of April. Yeah, Capital One today too. And that's, they're sending people home. But it's, it's like security though at the airport. You know, as soon as you start making people take their shoes off, no one is ever going to say, okay, you don't need to take your shoes off anymore because that's just an invitation for somebody to put bombs in their shoes again. I think just like this work from home thing, it's just going to be, you know, who's, are you going to be the company that told your people to come back and now... Five percent of your workforce is dead. I mean, it's it's going to be so hard to to get back out to the work from home thing. And and I'm I'm looking forward to the traffic in the Bay Area. And I'm also looking forward to not working in an open office. I'm not not sure which is worse, uh, a five year old or the open office. I'm thinking it may be the open office. I, I'm hoping uh, that this we can we can prove to uh, people at our our day jobs that working from home is very effective, and uh, we can actually have higher productivity. So that's my that's my goal for my team, at least in this time. Is like let's, let's really prove how amazing work from home could be. Yeah, <laughs> that's my my goal. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Well, I do say healthy, you guys, and we will see you next week here at the Cloud Pod. Goodbye, adios, whatever that we're gonna say. See you later. I'm just gonna wave silently, like people can see me. It's just easier. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at hashtag the Cloud Pod.